Hello and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. I am your host, Joe Montague. I hope you've all had a fantastic week. Um, so this week is going to be a slightly different episode before we get back to the regular interviews. Um, I reached a bit of a milestone with my isolated drums this week and hit a hundred I think it's actually 101, someone pointed out on an email, um, because I gave one away for free before I'd even sent them out. But anyway, 100's pretty cool. That means uh, over over two years. Yeah, 52 weeks in a year. So about two years of doing these isolated drums. Um, so I thought, uh, well, I didn't, I didn't think actually. Some people have requested, I've had a, a few different requests um, of people asking how I go about making these isolated drums so i thought as a bit of an interesting one-off episode it might be interesting for some of you to hear me talking about exactly how how i go about uh, making them and talking a little about a bit about my studio setup um there was a few different ways i could do this i could have got somebody to interview me and all that kind of stuff but i thought that's a bit too grandiose i could just run it through sort of my setup fairly basically and, and quickly and um, hopefully it'll be a bit of an interesting thing for you guys to know a little bit more about exactly uh, how my studio operates and the perspective that I am coming from when I interview the guests. Um, so without further ado I will do a segue and then I will continue talking. <laughs> so here we go, um, an episode about my isolated drums. Okay, so the first thing I think I should probably explain is what the Isolated Drums series is and how it came about. So early in 2020, a friend of mine from Germany called Nils, who is a George Harrison impersonator. So a quick side note, um, one of the things that I do as well as studio work is I play Ringo in a Beatles tribute show. And we mainly play theatres and... Um, private events occasionally but mainly theatres around the UK and uh, and we usually get abroad a few times a year as well which is kind of nice. Um, in fact I'm currently covering so subbing or depping as we call it in the UK over at the Cavern Club at the moment for their regular drummer so doing Fridays and Saturdays over there so you get to, to go to some pretty cool places. So sort of my my whole background is in, is in Ringo really um, and Nils got in touch for that reason and asked if I could recreate the solo sections of a few songs so that he could play the George Harrison solos for a YouTube channel that he was making and being the kind of person I was I am I decided rather than just recreating the solo sections I may as well if I'm going to go to the effort of doing that I may as well just do the whole song so about 15 songs there um, and I decided to transcribe them because I thought it's been a few years since I've really sat down and learned the Beatles songs. Um, so it would be kind of a good bit of revision for me. And it'd be really nice to get really deep into exactly what Ringo's playing. So as opposed to just sort of going, that's the beat he plays. Like getting every kick drum and every snare hit and every hi-hat accent and the, all that kind of stuff perfect. I thought it'd be quite fun to do it. So I did. And I ended up with 15 
transcriptions. So I use a program called Sibelius and 15 drum transcriptions and 15 playing recreations of the isolated drums. And then I was considering what to do with them. <laughs> and I thought, I can't really sell them because, I mean, I suppose they belong to me because I played them and recorded them, but they're Ringo's parts. It seems a bit, you know, there's only 15. You know, I, don't, I may as well just, I'll just put a sponsored advert out on Instagram and see if there's any response um, and kind of make a bit of a mailing list. And if anybody wants to use them, then they can use them. And uh, to my sort of surprise, it, I remember getting the first couple of subscribers and thinking, oh, this is really cool. And then to my surprise, lots of people started signing up and I decided to make it a regular thing. So I thought I'll send these out fortnightly and then that will give me 30 weeks worth. Um, and I had no major ambition to do much more than that. I just thought if I can buy myself 30 weeks worth of time and then see what happens. And then I got really into the transcribing stuff and ended up with a backlog of about 40 transcriptions and fortnightly wasn't working so I decided to speed things up to weekly and that was that so that's kind of the germination of the isolated drums um then I had a few other sort of choices to make so I could have played along with the records um and I could have tempo mapped the records and played along with that and then decided the most useful thing Seeing as at the studio, I play a lot with singer-songwriters. Obviously, I work with songwriters uh, mainly all over the world. So I thought the most useful thing for them would be as if I m record them all to a click track. And I know the Beatles stuff wasn't recorded to a click, but if I recorded them to a click, then people could chop them up and use them uh, however they wanted to, to, to use them, as at least they're sort of in time and they can be chopped and changed and whatever. So I thought that would be the most useful thing to do. So there's a little bit of a compromise made there. And uh, for a similar reason, I give all of the microphones that I use as opposed to just the, the sort of Beatles microphones that I use. Um, so I had a few decisions to make about that kind of stuff and a few other things have evolved over the couple of years I've been doing it. Um, so in terms of transcriptions, I use a few different ways of finding out exactly what, what there is. So obviously the first port of call is listening to the track and you can hear, depending on which version, so if it's been remastered or if it's an old version, um, you can sort of hear kind of what's going on most of the time. Often people have managed to isolate some stuff on YouTube using the, the Beatles rock band, which is kind of useful. Some of the quality is really questionable. Um, and there's occasional kind of discrepancies when the bass that Paul McCartney's playing sounds a bit like a kick drum at times. So when they've isolated some of the tracks, you might get a kick drum pattern that's not actually what's being played. So I've had to kind of learn over the time to, to differentiate between what I think is Ringo and what I think is Paul, and also based on what I know Ringo would likely play um occasionally things happen where you know the sticking wise obviously Ringo is a left-hander so he leads a lot of the fills with his left hand you kind of know sticking wise that wouldn't happen but it sounds like it's happening because of other instrumentation that's going on and you have to kind of make an informed decision i i make an informed decision based on what i think is happening um and i'm you know i'm completely open to 
to changing it if it ever happens. But I have to kind of make a decision in the moment and attune my ears. You know, if you've got your headphones on and you pick out a certain frequency and you just try and focus on that frequency and decide whether or not what you think is happening is happening. Um, and then maybe revisit it with a different set of headphones or something a little a little while later and really make sure that it is what you think it is. And But ultimately, you know, without having every separate part, you're not going to get it 100% right. You can just get it as right as you think it is. And as long as I've, I'm happy that I've covered it in every all the bases that I can, then, uh, yeah, then I'm happy to sort of proceed with the next stage. I really like the Ringo's use of, of sort of kick patterns and particularly hi-hats. The way he dances kind of on, on the hi-hat is oh, it's just so, so fascinating to me. He's bouncing off the vocal line mainly, the lead line, and the guitar lines. And... I wanted to get all of those little nuances in there rather than just sort of the blanket stuff because that's that's the thing that makes Ringo unique. And then you also get into how he differentiates between sections. You know, there's a really a great example is uh, is Drive My Car, which happens to be one that's in my head at the moment, where in the verses the he plays a pattern that goes uh and in the choruses it's and i mean that just that tiny little bass drum difference and it lines up with the vocal it, it matches up with the the lead vocal line that excites me <laughs> as nerdy and as lame as you might think that is that's the kind of thing that really excites me and it's those subtleties that really sort of help build an arc within a song and i before I started working in, in the Beatles industry, if you want to call it that, I always thought it'd be really cool to learn Ringo's playing um, for that reason, so that I can bring subconsciously into my own sessions when I do a session at the studio. I want to, to bring to the table those subtle differences to, to songs so that it sounds like it's a similar beat all the way through, but something's changing and the, the, the music's progressing in a way that you can't quite put your finger on how it is. You just or how you got to a particular place. You just know that you got there somehow. And Ringo's kind of the master at introducing subtle changes into things. And you, and you kind of... Oh, another great example we, I was talking about at the weekend with the, um, the Cavern Club Beatles is the uh, where it suddenly goes to straight at the end of All You Need Is Love. And it's going... Dun, 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 da, 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 at the sort of the outro of All You Need Is Love. And... The feel changes from ding, 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 and then Ringo suddenly goes and then three or four bars after the changes happened, you're going, oh, it's the music's kind of changed somehow, and and you'd never quite put your finger on the change in the moment, but as soon as it's happened, you kind of feel like it's 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 stepped up a gear, and it's those sorts of gear changes that really excite me and one of the reasons why I was really keen to do this um so yeah that's that so I kind of I, I have a I use Sibelius and I take down the drum part and then once I've done the drum part I'll focus on the percussion and I generally do I mean this is all kind of nerdy now but I'll generally do a giant sweep of the percussion and sort of make notes based on what I'm hearing if there's a lot or if I can only hear say a cowbell or a tambourine then I'll just focus on the cowbell for the whole song and then transcribe that, and then I'll focus on the tambourine for the whole song and transcribe that. And depending on the parts, it can take me forever. It, um, so I'm in the middle of doing Year Blues at the minute, and I mean, it, it's 
some of the late stuff's crazy. It can take me 10 minutes to just do one bar. Um, longer than 10 minutes. It, it's a... Uh, you you kind of know that so many so many of you guys are listening for these things and i just want to get it right just for me and there's no point doing it doing it if you're not going to try and get it right so yeah it can take quite a long time to get it accurate um okay so then if we get down to the studio kind of nitty gritty um if you'll have seen on my instagram i'm using a ludwig it's an early 70s ludwig even though the badges are a 60s a 60s badges it was bought off a friend of mine in, in the Beatles world who uh, tarted it up to look like a 60s kit because he was using it for gigs. It was actually an early 70s Ludwig and uh, I, I think it's beautiful. I'm really, really in love with it. Um, so I'm using that and I've got coated ambassadors on the top and the bottoms, which is what Ringo... Oh, this is on the toms, by the way. That's what Ringo used. Sort of gives, gives you that really nice warm sound and it's less modern than the clear heads that you get on the bottoms. Um, then on the snare again using an ambassador and it's a I'm using a 69 jazz festival which interestingly was the jazz festival that they used when let it be the the show the theater show opened on the west end um Gordon Elsmore who was the drummer um for that show who was my third or fourth interview on this podcast uh he he used that snare on Let It Be on the West End and I happened to find it on eBay and it just happened to be that drum. Um, so I bought it. So that's the the snare I'm using. And there's something about Ludwig's when uh, when the Beatles were sort of at their peak in, in the mid-60s, sort of 66, 67, obviously Ludwig were overwhelmed with orders. So production quality was uh, slipping um, this is just what I've heard. I'm sure people out there can correct me. Um, and then the quality improved towards the back end of the 60s. So I'm I'm comfortable that my 69 Jazz Festival and my early 70s kit are, uh, are hopefully one of the, the sort of the nicer ones to come off the production line. Um, so that's the, the kit I'm using. Um, Symbols-wise, I've got a nice set of, I think they're late 50s, uh, Zildjian Avedis, and they're super light, they're 15s. And they are so grubby, but it means that they're quite dry and they're very thin sounding, which is perfect for Ringo stuff. And I've got a 18. Uh, it, it actually is a, a Zildjian Avedis. I've got some Superzin, five-star Superzins as well, but I don't think that's what I'm using at the minute. So I've got an 18 and a 20. And I don't, if you, you did or you didn't know, but Ringo used a an 18 on his ride side and a 20 on his crash side which is unusual because the bigger one is usually obviously the ride symbol and the smaller ones obviously the crash um so then microphones and sort of gear wise um i use a large diaphragm condenser for the kick which at the moment i i can't remember what it is that i'm using um i'm gonna quickly load up my website so that i can see um here we go it is, oh, here we go. It's a Loughton LA220. I just did a bit of research. I was using an SE X1D kick mic, um, which sounded lovely, um, but then uh, it broke. So I bought the Loughton, and that's really nice too. It's um, it just, so I'm using it in the Ringo position, which is at 12 o'clock on the kick, and then um, sort of angling slightly towards the center of the kick drum. Um, and that's, that's really. I think it just sounds fantastic. Um, and that's going into a 
uh, an Alice 828, which is uh, a Ted Fletcher-designed console. You've probably heard me talking about it over previous weeks. And that's going into the Alice 828 um, desk. I'm not EQing it or anything, just just uh, putting some gain on it through the desk, and that's that. Um, I don't think I'm even doing anything on um, the Logic side of things. So I, I use Logic as my DAW, and I don't think I'm doing anything to it there either. I'm just uh, It just is what it is. In fact, on the desk, I might be cutting some of the highs out because um, they're, they're obviously not needed. That might be what I'm doing if I'm doing anything. Um, Snare-wise, I use a SM57 on the top, but that's not happening for these isolated drums. Uh, for the isolated drum stuff, when it's later, I'm using a Rode NT5, which are fantastic pencil condensers. If you don't know anything much about Rode microphones, they're just amazing. Um, for the money, I mean, they're just fantastic. So I'm using a um, pencil condenser on snare bottom, um, which is an, an interesting sort of quirk of, of Beatles mic techniques, really. A lot of people just use a 57 on the bottom or just any old mic. Um, but this, it really gets that sort of crispy sound, especially when you tie it in with the, the overhead and you just put a little bit of the fader up of, of the snare bottom. It just gets you that sound. It, it's, I really, I really love it. I just, a tiny little bit in there too. It just really gives you the, the sort of the buzz off the snares and that really crispy snare sound that's especially prominent in the later, um, in the later recordings, obviously, because that's when they were using the pencil condenser. Um, and then overheads, I'm using a D19, which was a, a long-term loan from Ed Alesco, who was another interviewee off, on this podcast, and to which I, for which I am extremely grateful. What a lovely chap just to, to post me a, a D19 on long-term loan. Um, so that's that. And then I've got a Coles 4038 as well. So the Coles is for the early recordings and the D19 I tend to use for the late recordings. And they are sort of chin height in the center of the kit. Um, and that's that's it for for the sort of the kit mics um, for the isolated drum series. I do have other kit mics um, and they're all running through. Uh, in fact, the, the snare bottom is running through the Alice. The two overhead mics are running through Analog Addict's Red 47 preamps, which are valve preamps. Um, and they're absolutely fantastic. So they're both going through through valve pre's straight into um, the converters. Uh, so and that and that's it for those ones. I use a Reslo RB1 in Blumline technique for the rooms, and I generally just use those to put a bit of spill, it's kind of room spill in there. Um, not an awful lot. And that's what I tend to use. Um, and that will usually be the mix, unless I'm doing something that was Tom Mike, so late '60s Beatles stuff. In which case, I use the um, snare, uh, the Tom Bottom miking technique that Jeff Emmerich used, uh, which again sounds fantastic. You kind of make sense if you read Jeff Emmerich's book. He talks about the sounds that Toms make, and you know you get the attack from the stick, but then the sort of ring of the tom comes from the bottom, so it makes complete sense to mic it up from under there. Kind of use your ears, that's where the sound comes from. So if you mic the toms from underneath, it just gives you a very unique sort of high high mid sound from the, the, the bottom head of a tom tends to be tuned higher than the top head. And it gives you a really unique sound 
which I am a particular fan of. It's not always useful for modern recordings, but it's certainly an interesting sound. And I don't think it would be, it would certainly be passable. If I sent it to somebody as a, as a session and said, that's the Tom mics, they would, I don't think they'd be any wiser that it was a snare, uh, a Tom bottom mic, as opposed to, uh, you know, regular on the, on the top skin. So I think it would be worth trying. Um, Especially when you're using tea towels on the drums, which Ringo obviously did reasonably often, you get the attack from the towel on the top that comes through the overheads, and then you get the ring off the bottom head that comes from the underneath mics, which is the snare bottom as well. And that gives you, particularly in songs like Come Together, um, that gives you that incredibly unique sound, and it makes complete sense. You're getting the resonant from the res- resonance from the kit from underneath, and you're getting the attack from the kit from on the top using the D19. And um, it does make complete sense. And it, it makes the sound, the Beatles drum sound makes sense when you kind of think of it that way. Um, and yeah, so that's that. So using a little bit of the Reslo RB1s. Um, it was interesting talking to Clay Blair. Um, again, one of the first episodes of this podcast. He's done some of the recreating the Beatles stuff. And he we talked about uh, a lot of spill coming from the U47s um the vocal mics i think they were U47s um being a big part of that beatles sound and and it really is you know going into studio 2 and seeing that room it's hard to believe a, a sound i could you could be getting stuff completely wrong here but you know you think of some of the drier drum sounds that happened um with so, some of the later songs and you can't believe that you, they they came out of a room like Studio Two, which is so huge. So there is definitely a bit they're they're roomier than you might think. Some of the drum sounds, um, and I, I, it's almost it's ambience as opposed to you're getting the dryness and that sort of uh, forward drum sound from the use of compressors and things, which I'll get onto in a minute. But they are the drum sounds are a li- little roomier than you might actually initially think. So once it's all going into the DAW, which is Logic, um, I have a Beatles bus that I use. I generally don't put much in the way of EQ or anything on any of the other... Oh, I've forgotten quite an important part, which this isn't necessarily part of the Beatles chain, but I'm using a Poltec clone, which is made by Analog Addicts as well, um, a Valve EQ on the kick and the snare. Um, that's on the kick in, so that's actually not happening on the isolated drum stems. Um, but the snare is in there, so there is a little boost, usually uh, sort of in the low mids, just to give the snare a bit of body, and I'm cranking it quite a lot on the highs. don't know the exact frequency, so I just sort of use my ears, um, just to give it, again, that, that real snap. Um, so once it's in the DAW, yeah, there's not really anything going on um, there. I just use it all on the bus. So I'm relying on the sounds going through the pre's to be really nice and the playing to be solid and uh, consistent. And then all of the other processing is just happening on the bus. And it's fairly straightforward. I use the Waves ATG, uh, AT um, or AR, I get so many blooming acronyms. I'm using the Waves. Um, mastering plugins the abbey road mastering plugin and there was a thing that the beatles did where 
you know, it may have just been for a handful of sessions or whatever, but you know, there was a, a thing that I heard that they used to do, which was cranking the top frequencies and cranking the low frequencies. And that's what I do on the channel strip that's on that mastering software. I just put the highs all the way up, the lows all the way up, and that's that. Um, I've used the Abbey Road Chambers uh, reverb, which I think gives it quite an authentic 60s sound, and I kind of balance that with, you know, I listen to the track and put as much of that in as I feel is on the track, just to give it that sense of, of being room two. Um, and then I use the Fairchild, um, the Puig Child, again from Waves. Uh, and I, again, I sort of dial it depending on how much you can hear. And you can hear it, for me, most on the cymbals, where you get that big sort of whoosh of the cymbals. Um, you can tell how much of that compressor is being used based on the particular sound of the cymbals. So I kind of dial it depending on how I'm feeling it should be. I think the biggest the biggest sort of thing, which might, <laughs> you might feel a bit like sacrilege, but that's kind of what this whole podcast is is about, is kind of being honest about the way that we record things. You know, you, you hear about the mic choices that I've got, apart from the overheads, which I think are quite important. They're a big part of the flavour. The, a lot of the mics and the outboard that I've got are not 60s outboard. You know, I'm using valve pre's for the overheads. The overheads are very important to me, as are the rooms. But the close mics, not necessarily. And, you know, it happened with the Beatles, with the, especially with D19s, and even with the 4038s, it's just the microphones that they had at Abbey Road. And it's not about the gear all the time it's about the playing that goes on on the front end and i'm not I'm not suggesting for a second that um what i'm doing is anything particularly special but the playing side of it you know i've been playing ringo for a long time and the playing side of it is is there so the sound i'm confident that the sound i'm putting into it is quite accurately ringo so the sound that's going to come out is hopefully quite accurately ringo um it's not necessarily all about the gear although you know obviously this all the small percentages do add up but you know i'm using a, a modern kick mic i'm using a modern snare bottom mic um using plugins and i'm using an rme interface and logic it's not you know it's not going through all of the the super exciting stuff that um you know that they have at abbey road although i wish it was um but the sound's still near enough there and I do think a large part of it is down to the playing and the way that um, and the sort of the sensibility of try, trying to get Ringo's sensibility and the way he dances on the hat and the consistency he has with his snare drum um, and with the kick drum um, and everything. It's it's the way that Ringo plays that's the sound, a large a large part of the sound, not necessarily um, the the outboard equipment. And you, you hear it when you hear Ringo playing. There's that one, that clip of him on a talk show. And I know that he plays a lot, <laughs> a lot of the parts wrong, but it still sounds like Ringo. You know, Ringo's going to sound like Ringo, whatever mics you put in front of him. Um, so that's what I think anyway. Um, if you're at all interested, I'll run through briefly the um, the rest of the gear that I've got here at the studio. So in the, uh, the kick in is going through a Neve 1073 which is also going into a DBX160 compressor and then into the Poltec clone. Um, 1073 was a choice because it's just classic kick drum mic, uh, kick drum preamp even, um, using a Lewitt 
kick in mike which is a, a dynamic i think I, I, again i don't didn't don't think about these things too much it's been in there for a, for a long while um it just sounds kind of like a kick drum basically like sort of thick and beefy um so that's that go and the 1073 is just one of my favorite pre's it's it's sounds lovely um use it a lot for vocal recording the ron ryan album that i've talked a lot about on this podcast the vocal has been recorded um in a couple of the tracks it was recorded through the neve and I, I tend to use it a lot for vocals it just sounds lovely and the snare top is a 57 and that's going into an api 512 uh, and then into a dbx um, 160a again mm, i think i like the api ish <laughs> It's there. I've got it. I've spent the money on it. I'm using it. It sounds like a nice preamp. It just gets used for the snare, and I don't have any hankering to use it on anything else. I, you know, it sounds kind of snappy like a snare should, and I can't. It's a very hot preamp, and I'm not a. I'm not overwhelmed by by it. It's certainly not a flavor that is my personal favorite. But it's there. I made a choice when I bought it years ago, and I'm using it for the moment. And it's a. Uh, it's doing a great job. Um, the overheads, like I've said, are a Coles and a D19, right, kick cent- uh, kit center. They're going through the red uh, 47 pre's that are from Analog Addicts. Um, then what else do I have? The Toms, the snare bottom. Uh, the Toms I'm using, Bayer Dynamic M201s. I use them for the uh, Tom Unders when I'm doing the late Beatles stuff too, and they sound fantastic. Used an M88, Bayer Dynamic M88 on the floor tom for a while, which is a lovely mic too. Really sort of rich, low-end sound. I used it on the kick for a little bit too as well, which also sounds great. Um, Hi-hat's a Rode NT5, although that's permanently muted. <laughs> Never gets used. Um, and they're all running through the Alice desk that um, that I got from Ted, uh, well, from Bobby Graham, who Ted tarted up for me. Um so that's um that's what that stuff's all doing. Um then I have some overheads which are AKG 451s from the 80s. They've got some kind of FET uh stuff which apparently makes them the better ones there. 451Es, which apparently makes them kind of nice. Um and they're going through a a set of pre's called Crest Audio, which they made um they're not made by Crest. They're copies of Crest, which um, was a kind of '90s console, and uh, it just sounded like kind of nice and modern and and um, clean, which I'm I'm kind of into for certain tracks. If I'm doing a modern session, um, I'm kind of into that sound. Um, but they don't get used an awful lot. My, mainly, I switch between the D19 and the Coles depending on what the flavor of the track is. The Coles has obviously got a lower, warmer sound, and the D19's got a kind of a um, bit more of a cutting sound to it um so that's that and then i'm using the rb1s reso rb1s from um xaudia as my rooms and then my newest favorite mic it's not a new microphone to me but it's in sort of a new technique for me i don't know why i've never done it before is i've got a a nice hallway with a wooden floor in the studio and i've got one of those shotgun mics that are made out of shotgun shells that i got from america if you're in the us or in america check these guys out um, I can't remember what the company's called, but if you Google shotgun shell microphone, they're about $40. And even with import charges into the UK, it costs hardly anything, you know, 50 quid or whatever. And they're really, really fantastic mics. So 
I got I've got that in the hallway just on the ceiling near the ceiling and that gives such a huge sound I'm I like it, it's being used on every session I've done in the last month or so it it's fantastic um, I'm genuinely gobsmacked at how good that sounds and I did it I did a session for Simon Trout who had the um the big red boat studio that we, we had on this podcast about a year ago and after that conversation I did a session for Simon and they asked for that microphone, um, the hallway mic. They asked for a Phil Spector sound, so I did that hallway mic. And it sounded great then, and I don't know why I didn't keep it up. <laughs> but I suddenly had this, this uh, I was just sat at the studio one day about a month ago, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to put that mic up there. And I did, and yeah, love it, absolutely in love with it. Um, I've also got a Sontronics Aria valve mic, which is uh, in a adaptone placement, I've called it which is actually um, between the bass drum and the hi-hat, sort of a bit further out. It's quite a, it's got um, quite a bit of high frequencies on this mic because it's to do, um, it's for vocals a lot mainly. So uh, I have to move it away, otherwise the snare gets quite overpowering. Um, but that's kind of in that placement, which is what they did on the Amy Winehouse first album. And, and it's kind of a classic placement for, for Daptone recordings. But I'm, I'm quite into it there. And it uh, that gets used a little bit, not as a main, as a building a mix around that mic for the moment, um, but it does certainly it certainly adds something when I need it. A lot of these random placement mics, I enjoy processing them. So if I you know want to put a bit of delay or saturation or do something silly with that microphone and then just blend it in a tiny bit into the rest of the drum mix, that sounds kind of fun. Um. And that that's basically it. So then um when I send you guys the isolated drums, I bounce them I bounce my mix, which is you know, whatever the Beatles used, and the, all of the, the information is, is on the website. So depending on what era it is, I bounce those microphones, and that's the mix that you guys get as the stereo or the mono mix. And then the rest of the microphones are just just there, and you may as well have them because they've all been recorded, so that they are just there. Um and they're all there on my website. Uh for you to to use and do whatever you want with i i kind of so what's happening at the moment is i'm making a book of you'll see that i've grouped them all into to eras and i'm making a book about each era um i've got all my transcriptions collected together and i'm turning them into a book but with some of my thoughts based on for so track for track or album for album making notes on why I made particular decisions. Because as I said before, sometimes it's easier to hear and sometimes it's harder to hear. So I've had to make some decisions based on experience um, and judgment. Um, and I wanted to to write those in so that it's a conversation. You know, hopefully if, um, you know, if some people hear it differently or we get a different mix in years to come of, of an album and it's not correct, I can say, okay, cool. Well, I made that judgment based on what I could hear at, that particular time and now we've got this available i can make another judgment um and i think that that's quite important when you're dealing with uh, with music as iconic as as the beatles is um so i'm working my way through a lot of the early um, recordings because i'm doing these books in order um and i'm hopefully going to crowdfund the books at some stage i haven't quite decided but i probably will do a kickstarter um rather than trying to get a publishing deal with somebody who will not put any effort into it or love and not give anybody 
<laughs> not, not give me any money for each of the books. I'm probably going to crowdfund it um, because I want to make a really special and sort of beautiful record. I want the book to be, itself to be beautiful. I want to make a, a record of these, um, of all of these transcriptions because it's just not been done before uh, to the extent that um, that I feel like it ought to have been. Um, so yes, that's that's what's happening. So you'll notice that I've got I've worked my way through quite a lot of the early stuff, um, and the later ones are taking a little while longer to transcribe because they are Ringo's playing is obviously developed, and he's not doing as many of the, the same sorts of fills that he doesn't does in the early sections. His fills are very variable, so it takes um it takes a lot longer to transcribe the late tracks than it does the early tracks. Um, so I will get down to that. I keep getting distracted by. Um, having a family and uh, being booked for sessions and <laughs> going off and doing gigs. So I, um, the balance of having uh, finding time to sit down and do all this stuff is is quite tricky. And make the podcast for you guys. Um, so yeah, it's all it's all kind of tricky. So I'm trying to balance all of that that sort of stuff. Um, and that's what's happening. So hopefully in in a you know two or three years to come, there will be a full complement of tracks up there on the website oh and i should mention some of the other the other artists i've done the rolling stones and um what else have i got here um there's a trogs track the kinks and the animals and all that kind of stuff they've all come from other projects that i've had at the studio where i've had to make those for other reasons and um have been given permission to share them with you guys so that's the reason that some other artists have, have existed um it's not because i i wanted to have a break from the beatles if it I would have loved to have just ploughed straight through with the Beatles, but I happened to to get asked to make these tracks, and I did. And the, I did. I actually made all of the instrument instrumentation for all of those tracks. So I asked if I could share the drum tracks with you guys, and um, very grateful to have been allowed to do that. So that's why those exist. And I want to kind of just focus on the Beatles now and crack on with that, and then I can get on with some other other artists in in years to come. It might even be that once I've managed to sort some time out. I can get them out a little faster and then focus on some other artists. Um, one of my major problems as a human being is that I've got so many ideas and not enough time to execute them all. <laughs> um, but hey, there are worse problems to have. So there we are. So that, that's kind of the whole background um, of my isolated drums, how I do them, my setup. If you've got any questions, you're more than welcome to email me. My email is joe at drums.com. So yeah, that's uh, that's all of that, and I I'm incredibly grateful to you guys for listening to this podcast, to for getting on board with um, the Isolated Drums project. Uh, I really hope that that you know I've got as I just said I've got lots of plans for other other things aside from the books involved in in doing these particular drum tracks, and I I hope to sort of have a, a nice community of people using these things and, and make a bit of a one-stop shop for all things Ringo over on the website. So that's that's the goal. And I am grateful to you guys for being here at the um, what I still consider as being kind of the beginning of this journey. Um, and yeah, I'm excited for, for the years to come. And I'm excited mainly just to have a lovely record of all of these amazing drum tracks from, you know, what I can who I consider as being one of the the, the greatest song drummers um to have ever existed and you know there are others of course i'm not um proposing that he is is the greatest although he may well be but you know i i love ringo i think his playing's amazing i think his 
um, the choices that he makes in songs are incredible. And it makes me feel uh, excited to have a written record and an audible record of all of those tracks or at least my interpretations of what all of those tracks are. So yeah, thank you for all all for being a part of it. I won't do any kind of sign off after this. I will just let the uh, the credits roll. Um, that just leaves me to say a big thank you to Adam Mallet for the artwork he supplies with this podcast, and also he designed my whole website, did all of the artwork on the website, uh, came up with all of that stuff. So he's a he's an incredible incredible human and graphic designer. Um, to Joe Kane. For the intro and outro music, Joe Kane is an interviewee of this podcast. He's been on before. Go and check out his band, The Poppermost, um, who are incredible. It's just Joe Kane, and he does everything. Um, he's a prolific songwriter and a really great guy. Um, and also Rory Hancock, who is a writer in his own right. Um, I'm doing some production stuff for him, and I play drums on his tracks. Um, and I've got to know him really well over the last few years. And uh, yeah, he's got big things to come. So he edits and uploads this podcast, and I'm really grateful to Rory for doing that. I'm super grateful for you guys for listening, and I will be back next week with regular interviews. Goodbye!